The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. This week, we're devoting the entire show to climate change. And joining me to discuss the issue is Anthony Curry and Ed Cropley. Both of them are editors at the commentary division of Reuters and write frequently about climate change and the companies that are affected. Anthony, let me start with you. We've just had a really alarming warning from the United Nations. Talk us through what they're telling us. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Swaha. So I would start by saying we've seen plenty of these warnings before. What's come out with this report? It's from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's like 260-odd scientists from 66 different countries who've gone through all of the various reports over the past six, seven years. I think it's eight years since the last big report came out from on this particular basis. Um, and they've synthesized it all and said this is what we think is happening and they're attaching a degree of probability to various scenarios. And they've come up with well, they posited five scenarios of how much climate change will impact the world over the next 80 years, and they split it up into the first 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. And they have five different scenarios within that. And they're saying that the, the worse the temperature rise gets, and let's not forget that in Paris in 2015 at the climate change conference, the so-called conference of parties or COP uh, conference uh, that they had there, um, there was a, a commitment from all participants, or allegedly all participants, to try and limit the average temperature increase from the pre-industrial period in the 18th century to two degrees Celsius, if not indeed to 1.5 degrees. And what they've done is said, look, this is what's going to happen under the various scenarios. At what point will we get above 1.5 degrees? And essentially what they're saying is there's a very strong likelihood it's going to breach 1.5 degrees within 20 years in all the five scenarios they've got if things aren't done properly as in we don't mitigate climate change enough. They are saying though that on the, the lesser of the two, certainly one of them, it may just hit 1.5 degrees increase and may actually then go back a bit in the in the intervening years. But as a result of that, regardless of which scenario we're looking at, the 1.5 degree increase all the way through to three, four degree increase, we have a lot, and I apologize for the uh, uh, for the pun here, but we have a lot already baked in from the, the carbon and methane and other greenhouse gas emissions that are already in the atmosphere. So we're gonna see, as they point out, far more instances of uh, flooding, of water scarcity, of wildfires, of excessive heat. Uh, so regardless of what we do now, we're going to see far more than we have in the past. And they're saying what we've already seen in the past 20, 30 years is in large part unequivocally due to human intervention in the climate because of burning fossil fuels and the like. Thanks for explaining that, Anthony. And baked in is right, given the temperatures they're mm. talking about. Does this sound like there is nothing to be done? Because the amount of change that's happening is gathering momentum, but it still doesn't seem to be enough. On the one hand, there isn't much that can be done for certain things. So they, they say in the reports that the chances are that certain sea level rises, certain ice cap melting, and they actually do differentiate and say the Arctic will melt a lot more, whereas the Antarctic, they're not, they haven't seen as much and don't expect as much. But as a result, they're going to they say, look, there's a certain amount of sea level rise that's definitely going to happen. Certain changes that are, have, we've already seen, so more floods, more droughts, etc., will happen on a more frequent basis, regardless of what we do. And some changes will last for decades, 
if not centuries, regardless of what we do now, which is one of those awful moments where you think, what's the point of doing anything? Well, the point is very simple. If we don't do anything, we're going to go from that, maybe we hit 1.5 degree increase in 2040, 2050, to we're going to hit two, three, four, five degree Celsius increase, in which case we're going to see far more impacts, far more humanitarian and financial pain. So to my mind, the reaction is, this is even more impetus for, for us to do as much as possible, as quickly as possible, to make sure that the effects are not as bad as they could be. Absolutely. And I mean, the official sector, so I'm talking about governments, central banks here, I mean, they've been clamping down on companies and trying to ratchet up the pressure and make both carrots and sticks for there to be change. We see things like stress climate tests and how much insurance insurers or banks could be affected. We're also seeing private sectors sort of coming up with bright new ideas. Ed, you've got an example of one of them. Do you want to talk us through that? Yeah, well, one of the problems, as, as Anthony was alluding to, is um, something must be done. You know, ideally, we would turn off all fossil fuel consumption tomorrow, but you, you quite clearly can't do that. Um, you know, the world relies on fossil fuels for the vast majority of its energy needs at the moment. And so it will be economically catastrophic to throw the switch on all fossil fuel use um, in a very short time. That said, a speedy phase down of fossil fuels and, and ramp up of uh, renewables is absolutely essential. And, and coordinating the two is going to be crucial to making this switch work. And, and the interesting example is what recently been well, the, something that the Asian Development Bank is working on along with uh, insurer, the UK insurer Prudential, looking at essentially the, the coal-fired power stations in Southeast Asia and, and South, Southern Asia. It's the area of the world which is building more coal-fired power stations than, than any other at the moment. And the idea is that um, through a state-backed financing initiative, essentially they would buy these coal-fired power stations using very, very cheap state-backed credit, so, so a low discount rate. And that would allow them to then run down these power stations sooner than expected. You know, say, say a power station's got 20 years or 30 years of life, they might be able to run it down and close it in 10 or 15 years. Of course, this would then have the effect of, of burning less coal, but it also make coal mines that much less attractive to own from the, from the production side. And so it would undermine these economic incentives to go anywhere near coal at the moment. And I must say those are diminishing economic incentives already and yet if this sort of initiative takes hold, then then coal really will be consigned to the history books, possibly within a decade, 15 years or so. I can't believe you didn't say slag heap for that one, Ed. I mean, that would have been a perfect analogy just to stretch the awful analogies that, that I tend to I, I think it's a cliche that's been uh, used so many times. <laughs> but Ed's right on that one, Swa. I mean, it's what's great about the Asian Development Prudential idea is it's trying to buy up swathes of power stations, whereas a lot of the examples we've seen so far have been to look at one or two. So there was a great example down here. I'm, I'm in Melbourne in Australia and the state of Victoria, which Melbourne is the capital of, has one of the dirtiest power stations, certainly the dirtiest power station in Australia, if not one of the dirtiest uh, in the region, which has been operating since the 60s or 70s, if I remember correctly, and is due to close in 2032. The state of Victoria, which is a, a left-ish wing government, has come up with an agreement with the owners, a Hong Kong-based company, to close it earlier and it's great it's like coming up with a mechanism that shouldn't cost taxpayers much money uh, if anything it will close it earlier it will try and uh, give time for the employees there to find other jobs which should therefore help 
the region, the country region of Victoria to get over the fact that they're going to have one of their bigger uh, local owners closing. But it's just one coal plant, whereas what the ADB and Prudential are coming up with is an idea of maybe taking on you know, coal plants in maybe 10 different countries. It might only be 10 to 15, 20 percent of coal emissions at the moment. But when, when we spoke to them, the ADB was saying that we can see already that the African development banks, other development banks, and other uh, regions of the world are starting to talk to us about whether they could do the same thing. If that happens with coal, maybe it happens with oil, maybe it happens with other fossil fuel emanating plants or companies or whatever. So it feels like it's a good bit of momentum after years of seeing rather more piecemeal, important, but piecemeal attempts to try and tackle the problem. Let me come back to one of the points you raised, Anthony, which was about oil. You're talking about coal, oil. A lot of companies are still making a lot of money from these polluting raw materials. Ed, you wrote recently about Glencore. It's a hard one when the demand is there and they will supply as long as that demand is there. Uh, yeah, Glencore's, Glencore's played a very cunning game. I mean, it still produces uh, around 100 million tonnes of thermal coal a year, and that's coal that goes just into burning to make electricity. Yeah, coal prices at the moment are near record highs, about $150 a tonne. This means that this year, Glencore could be cleaning up about $5 billion worth of EBITDA from coal. That's a hell of a lot of money. It's about a third of all the EBITDA that Glencore is going to produce this year. Normally, you would say this makes them an absolute pariah. They'd be uninvestable. But Glencore convinced investors and indeed, to a certain extent, the general public that they are responsible guardians of that coal legacy because they say we are going to run them down. You know, we're not going to invest in uh, expanding these mines. We're literally going to mine what is there, what's available and then close them down. And we'll use the money that we've derived from from these operations to invest in increased copper production, increased cobalt, nickel, and all the other minerals that we so desperately need to build the infrastructure needed for um, the green energy transition. It's a fairly compelling argument. At the same time, it does mean that if coal prices stay high, Glencore and its investors are going to make out like bandits. And, and it's a question of really, can they be trusted to follow through on this and not try and string out the lifetime of coal for as long as possible in order to enjoy this windfall? Let me pose a, a difficult one. I don't know that there are any obvious answers to this, but um, big companies, big oil, big coal, big polluters have been making a lot of money, paying a lot of dividends, doing huge share buybacks, and are now saying that they need government help and subsidies if they're to make the transition. I mean, who should pay for this, really? Because it's either going to be the taxpayers around the world and the burden sometimes falling on the poorest countries who are both facing rising water levels or extreme weather situations leading to drought and famines and have little money set aside to help with these transitions. Um, Anthony, let me start with you. Not an easy question, as I said, but... No, it's it's not. I I think you know the the, the very simple answer, although it, it's it's hardly necessarily a workable one, is that they shouldn't get any money from governments. If they were to get any, it should come. It's a bit like if you if you look at what happens in or what's beginning to happen in the capital markets, you get you know sustainable linked bonds and loans. So you say, okay, we'll lend you the money, but you've got to have a series of targets that you have to hit, otherwise. Yeah, a number of things happen. Either we increase the interest rate. Oh no, that's going to hurt. Well, yeah, it goes up half a percentage point. Is that really going to kill us? Well, actually, in the case of coal, maybe it does. But the point is, you you try and force these companies to show that they're going to change. Right. So, number one, don't give them the money. Number two, if you really have to for various reasons, i.e., you don't have um, the capacity in the rest of your system to generate the right kind of energy you need from renewables or less 
polluting fossil fuels like gas. I don't think gas is great, but it's it's far better than coal and oil, for example. Then sure, but set targets for them. As for who pays, that's the thing. No, no one is really looking, at least not properly, at how you fold in the entire cost of, of burning fossil fuels. So we talk about a carbon price, fine, but I'm not even sure that a carbon price folds in the number of people who die each year from pollution or from global heating or from droughts, floods, whatever. Many of which, of course, we look at what's happening in Australia, America, Europe, where we had floods recently, China, we have floods, but we're not really talking about global south where a lot of these countries do not have the money, do not have the wherewithal to protect themselves adequately against all of these changes. And they're going to pay with lives and damage infrastructure far more than we will in the Western world. And that's why far more inclusive price, however we do that, which includes those kind of costs, uh, has to be one way forward if we are going to keep some of these these individual uh, companies and industries going, which I mean, to an extent, I think that's what we've been talking about with the coal, with coal, right? I mean, we know this has to continue in certain places purely because they have nothing else. But what's on the back of the ADP Prudential Plan, for example, is not just let's buy these things and close them early, but also let's encourage, push with the, the local government's help uh, for a de the development of renewable energy sources so that we don't have to go back to coal. So you need more sticks than we're seeing at the moment, as well as carrots, to make sure that this works properly. Well, just just following on from that, Anthony. Now, I mean, due to the the rapidly falling and and still falling cost of renewable energy production for a, a poor country that's thinking, you know, I need to invest in one gigawatt of renewable energy capacity, well, one gigawatt of energy capacity now. You know, that's going to cost you a billion and a half, say, mm. roughly. But it's going to be cheaper to do it via renewables now than it is via coal or, or gas-fired power. Um, so so that's something that wasn't true five years ago. So now it's it's really like the the opportunity is there. You just need a nudge to do it because often you'll be dealing with energy ministers in countries that don't have the capacity to, to sort of launch proper tender processes. And so financial sense for them to do it, it makes environmental sense for them to do it. But then they need the technical assistance and the confidence to go ahead and just make that step into what has hitherto been an unknown. It's worth also pointing out that the cost of inaction is several fold, right? Yes, some of which we talked about. What happens to the environment? What happens as a result to you know, with, through, through heating, through floods, droughts, uh, to people's lives and livelihoods? But if we step back a bit and say, okay, when have we managed a, a good transition from a dying industry to an industries that are going to replace them? So if we put climate change to one side for a minute, look back at what happened with the coal industry in the UK and the steel industry as well, and large swathes of the US as well, before we were even thinking about climate change. Governments were useless at thinking through these issues and trying to work out how to deal with this long term social ramifications of massive economic change in certain parts of the countries. And you can still see them clinging on to that now in Australia, especially the desire to keep coal from certain parts of the federal government and from the coal industry themselves is huge. And yet it's all about really trying to keep hold of the money they're earning because they know it's going to go at some point, but they're not giving any thought to how to make sure you transition away from what you know is going to disappear at some point in the next 10, 15 years. If you don't start doing that now, and you don't start factoring that into the price, you're not going to be in a good enough position to do it properly. And, and that worries me a lot because I think there's far too much short-termism, not just about the climate, but unfortunately it's so much about how few, a certain few number of people can make a lot of money keeping those mines and those power plants going. And they're just thinking, give us one or two more years. It's a, it reminds me a bit of stock exchanges 20 30 years ago before electronic trading came in all the traders just wanted one more two more years it's, it's untenable
One of the things also, Anthony, that you were talking about in a piece that you wrote recently on flooding, and that's been a huge problem mm. around the world in different countries uh, in what should have been summer, um, is the issue of living as well with the damage that has already been created and we probably won't manage to reverse. And you had some really interesting ideas about that. Again, it's, it's acknowledging what we've done and what's going to happen next. I mean, these things shouldn't be controversial, but in Germany, for example, the amount of work that's been done to manufacture rivers to do what we want them to do, to flow in a certain way, to and often to, to, to help industry or to help transport, all of which is fine. It happened you know, 200, 300 years ago. But now we're faced with a situation where so many cities around the world are based on, obviously, around the coasts where, where sea levels are rising, but also on rivers where we're much more prone to flooding. And we haven't given enough thought to how to protect against that. So on the one hand, you think, well, maybe we shouldn't be near rivers, but we need to be because obviously we need the water. But if we're going to be there, how do we protect ourselves? Well, we use nature rather than thinking, how do we put up walls or levees or something else? Why don't we use nature that already exists or that used to exist? So mangroves by coastal areas or you know, marshes, uh, peat marshes, bogs. I know we don't like the idea of them, but these are very good stores of water. They allow the water to be collected and not flow so quickly down the streams that we have manufactured to what we needed them to do in the past. And also, a lot of these things have the added benefit of also storing carbon. So you can solve two things or three things at once. You prevent or you lessen the impact of floods. You store more carbon and you can even store more water for times a year or two down the road when there's going to be inevitably uh, droughts. I mean, a great example is Germany itself. Two years ago, the, the river levels were so low, I think just two or 300 miles away from where the floods have happened, that certain companies couldn't actually ship products out. The Oroville Dam in Northern California, four years ago, was parts of it were due to crumble because there was so much water because of floods that they had to go in and do some emergency repairs of some of the spillover uh, lines. Now, there's so little water that the hydropower plants that's based on the dam has had to close down for the first time in its history. So you've got both problems happening within years. And sometimes if you look at India, within months of each other, floods and droughts. So you need these so-called nature-based solutions to help deal with both sides of that. Thanks, Anthony. Ed, you had a thought there. I cut you off at the beginning. Go for it. Yeah, no, look, the, the, I suppose this is a... Um... It's also a, a negative um, premonition almost from the, from the perspective of the global south. And Anthony is talking about some very sophisticated, coordinated global responses to a dramatic economic and sort of social shock. And the trouble is the experience in the last 18 months and the response to COVID from the global south perspective is, is not um, particularly reassuring. If you consider that the uh, vaccine rollouts to poorer countries have been hesitant at best um, and very much they've been left to their own devices. The feeling is that if, if we are now looking for a global response that coordinates across countries and across uh, income brackets in different countries, the, the experience of the last 18 months with, with COVID doesn't augur well for a completely coordinated global solution. No, absolutely. Having said that, this is one thing we will all suffer together, regardless of rich, poor or where we are in the world, uh, as weather sort of respects no boundaries and no riches. Anthony and Ed, thank you very much, both. Thank you, Swaha. Thank you very much. That's our show for this week. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Sharon Lamb and Katrina Hamlin. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. 
Check us out at breakingviews.com, subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast kicks. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us again next week for another edition.